We're starting a new series of lessons for our Sunday school class this morning. You can read, obviously, so at the top you'll see the attributes of God. What we'll be doing theoretically is 16 lessons. Um, that is, if we finish each lesson per week, uh, we'll be at 16. I'm going to be gone three Sundays out of February, so I know that that will put us off a little bit. So we will at least get into April or early May with this particular study of the attributes of God. I want this morning to start with an introduction. We won't deal with the attributes technically per se, although obviously along the way I'll mention some of them. I'm going to take it for granted that I'm, I'm speaking to people that at least have some background knowledge and understanding of the attributes of God. But one thing I am always sensitive to in this particular class, since our brother Greg stopped teaching several years ago, and we combined the youth class and the adult class, and that is we have younger people, 13, 14-year-olds, and we have 70-year-olds, right? And so we have the whole gamut of Christian experience. We have a whole gamut of teaching, learning, and understanding. And so want to try to make things very, very accessible, uh, but at the same time uh, somewhat thorough through the scriptures to give us an understanding of the attributes of God. This is a very important study. Uh, I'll show you a quotation in just a moment uh, by a guy named A.W. Tozer who makes the point that every error of doctrine can be traced to a deficient view of God. Now, that's a huge statement. That, that's, a, that's a big thing to say, that every error in doctrine can be traced to a deficient view of God. But if he's right, then I think that does emphasize to us all the more why it is important for us to have a right view of God. And so if you look at the top of your notes, the very first quotation is from A.W. Tozer in his classic work, The Knowledge of the Holy. I would recommend if you've never read that book to read that book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It was written in 1961. The preface and the introduction of that book is prophetic for the modern church. What he viewed as a problem in 1961 has only magnified itself over and over and over again and has proven to be true in the structure and framework of the modern mega church style type movement. And it's something that we need to understand. I don't want to come across in these opening remarks as overly negative. And as I was writing this and, and thinking through the whole process of this and what to say, I was conscious of that thought in my mind. This sounds so negative. This sounds so bad. And I don't want to begin a study of the attributes of God by just throwing rocks at the outside and, hey, all those churches are bad and 
you know, we're so much better and we're so good. Um, I think we have to start at home and we have to begin with our own hearts. And even as I was thinking on these things and, and working on this introductory lesson, I was struck in my own mind, my own personal deficiency in really being consistent and being careful with a right framework of God. It is so easy to fall into idolatry. And we'll unfold that a little bit in just a moment. But look at this first quotation. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, that quotation really summarizes the need that we have to think rightly about God. No religion of this world has ever risen higher than its view of God, than its understanding of who God is. In the second paragraph is where we come to this point that I said already just a moment ago. Every error in doctrine can be traced to a deficient view and understanding of God. When you come to doctrinal errors as far as salvation, when you come to, I would submit to you even, what would be pure Arminianism or what in church history we church history, we would identify as semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism is the soteriological framework of the Roman Catholic Church. It's not said this way by those who believe it, but it is the fact that semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, simply views man as being sick or weak, and he can do something to save himself. And that theology is the default view of the fallen heart. The default view of the fallen heart is I must contribute something to my own salvation. I must help God because God needs my help. And we, we get into this language of allowing God to do this, that, or the other thing. Uh, was doing some errands yesterday, no, Friday. And I pulled into Tractor Supply, and as I was pulling into the parking place on BBN, this is one of these little minute thought, little ditty things on, on BBN. And the whole point of it, the whole thing, was basically allowing God to do this, that, or the other thing. And how we and this is the language that was used, stand in God's way, allow God, we have to, it's like, well, God will do what God will do. God, we don't allow God. God does. God is, is the sovereign of all things. But even those little subtle things have worked themselves into the church in such a way that it is a manifestation of a wrong view of God. Any distrust of God in your circumstances is a wrong view of God. Anxiety and worry stems from a wrong view of God. 
is a wrong view of yourself, but a wrong view of God. And it's just wrong thinking. Most today, if you would just generally survey uh, the modern church, and when I say the modern church, it, that's, uh, that's a broad phrase, I understand. The, the popular church, the, and when I'm using this in the framework of Southern Christianity, the, the Christianity that you, you knock on the door to do evangelism and everybody goes to church when it's convenient for them to go. Everybody's a Christian. And they're Christians only because they're not Buddhist. They're, they're Christian in the generic, general sense of the term. You survey that population of professed Christianity, and what you'll find is an emphasis on the love and the mercy of God. God is love. Absolutely. The Bible says that. God is merciful. Absolutely. The Bible says that. But what we find today is an emphasis on certain aspects of God's character to the detriment and to the ignoring of other aspects of God's character. For example, his judgment and his holiness. Most don't understand those correctly. You would ask, is, does God judge? Well, of course he does. Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin, yeah, but not me. I'm okay. And that's the, that's the idea. That's the prevailing, pervasive idea. And you ask about the holiness of God and our understanding of God's holiness is extremely deficient. I would submit in this room our understanding of the holiness of God is deficient. I say that because we're dealing with one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And we are finite, and we are sinful. And our view of God will always be deficient. And so this is why this is so important for us to, to understand. God, in an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable way, is loving. In an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable way, is merciful. But he's also a God of judgment and a God of holiness. And we'll come to each of those attributes in a more specific way later. But we must remember that in our thinking of this, and this may be a leap in logic, but follow me here. Idolatry takes many forms. And when I say idolatry, I'm not talking about bowing down to something that we've carved out of stone or carved out of wood. We're idolaters in our own mind, we're idolaters in our own heart, because we are guilty of this. This is why I say I'm not, I don't want this to be negative, just throwing rocks outside. We need to throw rocks at ourselves, and we need to examine our own hearts. We can be guilty of fashioning a God according to our own understanding. You know, Pastor Kimbrough very often talks about legalism and antinomianism. Pastor Kimbrough very often has, just last Sunday, he, he referenced it again. And, and I hope you all catch the point and the emphasis of what he says when he talks about 
the response of the Jews in the time of Christ. And he always mentions four different groups of people. You have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the, you know, basically irreligious, basically. But, but these three main groups of Jews play out in our day as well. You have the Pharisees who, in their response to Rome, were, no, we have to separate, we have to be way over here, we have to add all these laws, and we have to build these fences around the law of God, and we have to protect Judaism, we have to protect God. God can't protect himself, we have to do it. The Sadducees, on the other hand, said, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And so the Sadducees were basically compromisers. And they said, well, we, we're not going to be able to beat the Romans. We're not going to be able to overthrow them. And so we may as well join in with them. And so that led to all sorts of compromise and eventually false doctrine. Remember the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the Sadducees were the ones who didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, supernatural beings. But that came from their uh, compromise. First socially, but then eventually theologically. And then you had the zealots who said, no, we have to fight. We've got to take up arms. We have to, we have to overthrow this government. This government's no good. We have to literally beat them. And you have these responses. But all of these were an idolatrous part response to God. God is in heaven. God has done whatsoever he has pleased. But what we do, we do the same thing. We, we, we have the same kind of responses. And in our frailty, we have fashioned, we, we are guilty of fashioning a God according to our own likeness, our own understanding. And the reason I bring in what Pastor Kimbrough says of those three groups, what those three were doing, all three were convinced absolutely that they were serving God rightly. They all believed that they were pursuing the, the holy right religion of God. But what they, what all three were guilty of doing were basically redefining who God is to the satisfaction of their own mind, placating their own conscience. Now, we might take those extremes, but we do the same. We fashion a God according to our own understanding. We, we, we make a God, we make an idol in our own heart that accepts us. And that's idolatry. That's at the, at the very root of it. And we, we end up embracing a, perver a perverted view of God. And you know, I mentioned these earlier that they emphasize love to the detriment of holiness. Well, again, it, it's, it's really the same thing. It's inventing a God that doesn't exist in the Bible. It's a God of man's own imagination when we, we don't understand who God is. Now, I want, to, I want you to turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes 5. We're going to be, uh, if you look at your notes, I've got verses printed, many of them, to keep from just flipping everywhere through your Bible, but you can look them up in your Bible for some context. But let's start with Ecclesiastes 5, 
There's a definite solemnity that we have to have when we come to study God, when we come to study the, the attributes of God. There's no room for, for foolishness. There's no room for flippancy. We're dealing with the God of heaven. Ecclesiastes 5, look at just the first two verses. Keep is the first word there. It really has the idea of watch, guard, look after, be careful. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon the earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Now, here Solomon in Ecclesiastes is giving us this warning of going to church. Now, his context was the temple the sacrificial system, etc., of the temple. But here we have this admonition to guard our steps. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the, to the house of God. He's emphasizing in these verses the solemnity that there is in approaching the God of heaven. Now, you know, let's back up just a minute and let's think through this and put this in, in some context and framework. When we come to church, this is a happy place. I, I, hope, I hope you're you're happy to come to the Lord's house. This is a happy place. And this is a place where, at least from my perspective, like my friends are here. The, the people that I love and care about, this is where they are. And as our circumstances play out, it is pretty regular that the only time I get to see you people and you see one another, whatever, is the Lord's Day on, on Sundays. We come and, and we fellowship and it's wonderful. It's great. We, we don't want to throw water on that in any way whatsoever. It's a happy place. This is where the Lord's people come together as a family of believers and, and rejoice in, in the Lord. But at the same time, there has to be a solemnity of coming into the, the Lord's house, into the Lord's presence. And you know, Pastor Kimber often prays this phrase, quiet our hearts. You know, that, that's bringing a hush over our hearts for, for this time that we come to worship. We, we put away, we, we cast out all those distracting things. And we're about serious business when we come into the Lord's house. And that really is a right perspective that we ought to have as we come to, to worship. To understand our place. We are on the earth, as it says at the end of verse 2, we're on the earth and God is in heaven. He is highly exalted and we are not. We don't come here to exalt ourselves before the Lord. Now, Sadly, this is what we see in much of the modern, contemporary church today. 
and we need to be careful to avoid that in our own lives. So when we talk about the attributes of God, what we're talking about is simply something that is true about God. It is trying to define something of his character. And so we, we have to admit, we'll look at this a little bit more in a moment, but we have to understand that we're trying to define the undefinable. We're trying to understand the incomprehensible. And so there's a sense in which we're trying to do the impossible, but yet there is reward for the effort. If you, along the way, decide, hey, I want to study some more about this, and you, you go to some resources that deal with the attributes of God, one of the things that you'll find in many of the different resources, rather than referring to them as the attributes of God, they're referred to as God's perfections. And, and that's a, a phrase you might find in studying the attributes of God. God's perfections. Well, it's an appropriate word because all of these things that we're going to look at as far as God's character, God is perfect in all of these things. We'll close out at the end looking at different categories that are often used when we talk about the attributes of God. And in those categories, we have some attributes that we also have. God is love. I'm supposed to have love. God is infinite. I'm not that. So that's not something that is simultaneously true of God and me. But there are attributes that are simultaneously true of God and me or God and you. God has those to a perfect degree. We have those to an imperfect degree. And part of our sanctification, our growing in grace, is that we come closer together in the manifestation of those attributes. But when we consider God's perfections, look at a few verses here. I just have these in your notes. You can look at this. The top of page 2 is the first one, Matthew 5, 48, and just the last part of the verse. And I'm just pulling out three verses here that just say in no uncertain terms that God is perfect. And so you see Matthew 5, 48, your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Another one, Psalm 18, 30. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in him. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment of God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. And so, again, we have this emphasis, and those are just three of you know, perhaps hundreds of verses that just establish this foundational truth of God himself, that God is perfect. And so when we consider these attributes, we're, we're going to come across many that we can relate to. And the description and understanding of some of them are going to be far easier than the understanding of others. Right? When we talk about the fact that God is unchangeable, I would submit that that's something that we can only understand in theory. We don't have any perfect, I'm sorry, we don't have any personal experience 
in immutability. That's the big fancy theological word. We don't have any personal experience in immutability. We don't have any personal experience in infinity, in eternality. We can't relate to those things in a personal way because we are the definition of change and finitude, finitude, finiteness. That would be an adjective, right? With the ness and the finiteness and non-eternality, not being eternal. I'm making up words here. See, this is the point. We can't, we're so imperfect. But everything about God is perfect. And so if there's one thing that, that I want us to, to capture here and keep front and center in our, our thinking, it is the first sentence of that second paragraph in the middle of page two there. And it says, God cannot be fully known, but to the regenerate heart, he can be truly known. And so to say that to study and to understand God is impossible is not something that could, should cause us to just throw our hands up and say, well, if it's impossible, then what's the point? Well, we can't fully understand the God that we serve. But as those that have been redeemed, we can truly know him. And this is the wonder of his grace that he has revealed himself to us. He has made himself known. We have in the Bible revelation. I remember in seminary, uh, one of the main professors, Dr. Barrett, would often say that what God has given to us is revelation, not concealment. And he would just make the statement that is very relatable. God is not playing hide-and-go-seek with his people. God is not trying to be secretive. He's not trying to mislead us. He's not trying to confuse us. No, he has revealed himself. He hasn't revealed all of himself because we don't have the capacity to take that in. But he has revealed to us what is necessary for us to understand and what is what we're capable of understanding. And so we take the scriptures and we, and we seek to make use of what God has revealed. And so God can be truly known. And so he has revealed himself. Now, again, to use some big fancy words that you'll find in theology books, the way that God has revealed himself are through what are called anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms. Most of you have probably heard that word, anthropomorphisms. Does anybody know what that means? Does any teenager know what that means? Lizzie? Do you know? Does anybody know? There's no point in using words we don't know what they mean, so... Right. So what is an anthropopathism? Yeah, it's an emotion, yeah. So anthropomorphism does include emotions, but it has morph. You, you hear the word morph, anthropomorphism, uh, as the idea of a form, right? So the Bible talks about the hand of God. 
Well, let's quote question four of the catechism. What is God? God is a spirit, right? So God doesn't have a hand. The Bible talks about the eye of God. Well, God doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't have feet. He doesn't have any body parts. I don't understand that, and neither do you. You can pretend to understand it, but you don't. Right? We don't understand what that means. So how can God communicate himself in spirit? I don't even know what that means. Right? But he does communicate himself in ways that we can't understand. And so I get it. I understand what it means to have a strong arm as opposed to a weak arm. And so when God says his arm is strong, then that makes me understand God is able to do things. When it talks about the eye of the Lord, I understand what it means to see. And so when it talks about God seeing, God's eye, I understand that. God sees. And I, I can understand the concept that God is stronger than me. He sees better than me. And so God is communicating himself in this way. The same thing with the anthropopathisms, talking about the vengeance of the Lord, the wrath of God, and these sorts of things. These emotions, you know, those, again, we, we understand what that means and how that is. And so what the Holy Spirit has done in the scriptures is he's used these human terms to help us understand the divine spirit of, of God. And so, again, while God cannot be fully known, he can be truly known. And so, let's look at some of these verses here. We might not read all of these, but look at this first one, Job 5 and verse 9. It speaks of God which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Again, they're just a description of God being incomprehensible. The, the, the doing, the work of God, innumerable. Uh, on in Job 11, 7 to 9. Canst thou by searching found, find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? And so, you know, what's the answer to that? No, we can't. We can't understand, we can't find out the Almighty unto perfection. It is as high as heaven, what canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So here's Job trying to, to explain the incomprehensible nature of God. Job 36, 26, behold, God is great. And we know him not, neither can the number of his years be searched out. Now, when it says we know him not, obviously we know God. We're able to know him. But the point there is that full breadth of understanding. Um, skip down Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. When it says there he set out the world in their heart, that word world would better be translated as eternity. God is, has made us eternal beings. We have eternity 
written on our heart. That's part of our being created in the image of God. But we're not able to understand the work that God has done from the beginning to the end. Um, skip over to Romans 11, verses 33 to 34. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So here it's mentioning specific attributes of God. The depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counsel? And then 1 Corinthians 2.16, similar theme. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And it goes on to say, but we have the mind of Christ. And then Deuteronomy 29.29 is really one of the important verses in studying the, the attributes of God. One of the more important verses in Scripture when we study the sovereignty and providence of God. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And I say it's an important verse in, in studying the attributes of God, an important verse in studying providence and sovereignty, in establishing that there are secret things that belong only to the Lord. There are things that the Lord is not, has not, is not, will not reveal to us. We don't know them. They're the secret things of the Lord. But in the same, at the same time, when it says that there are these secret things that belong to him, it also establishes the fact that there are things that God has revealed to us, and we have a purpose for that revelation. Why is it that God has revealed these things to us that we may obey? That's what the end of the verse, that we may do all the words of this law. God has revealed himself. We, we can know him. He can be truly known by the regenerate heart. And you know, when we read Psalm 113.6 that says God humbles himself, he humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth, that's amazing. And you put that in juxtaposition with Psalm 138, verse 6, that though the Lord be high, yet he hath respect unto the lowly. And so we, we come kind of to the end of this introduction part, and we're talking about a God that is incomprehensible, but a God who has humbled himself to reveal himself to us. And a God who, though he is so high, Yet he has stooped, if I can use that word in the most reverent way, he has stooped to reveal himself to us so that we can know him. And, and more than just know him, enter into covenant relationship with him. Enter into the closest and dearest relationship of all with him. That's an amazing aspect of grace. That this God who is so high and incomprehensible, yet it says in Acts 20, 28, has purchased us with his own blood. He, he has humbled himself to that degree 
that he sent his son to be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so it's an amazing truth to understand this God that is so high, yet he has respect to us who are so low. And so trust the Lord will help us in this whole study of these attributes. I'll just finish one last thing This on the, the very last page of classification. And we'll get into this a little bit more next week when we start into uh, some of the attributes more specifically. But most commentators, theologians, systematic theology, book writers, whatever, um, when they deal with the attributes of God are going to classify the attributes into two categories. What we call incommunicable and communicable. So in light of COVID, I think we all know what a communicable disease is, something that can be spread, something that somebody else can get from you. Well, incommunicable is the opposite of that. So the incommunicable attributes are those attributes that are true only of God, characteristics that he does not and, and cannot be communicated to the creature. So infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, for examples, are attributes that are incommunicable. And then we have those communicable attributes. And those, for example, power, goodness, mercy, righteousness, etc. Part of what we're going to be doing in looking at each of these attributes is look at those attributes of God, how they relate to our sanctification. We are, as we're told in 2 Corinthians 7, we are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. We are to seek to be as much like God as we can be on this side of eternity. And so as we understand more of who God is and we understand how God manifests these attributes and his characteristics, then Lord willing, that will help us, teach us to imitate those in our lives as well. So next Lord's Day, we will get into more of the meat and potatoes of the individual attributes. But with that, let's close in prayer tonight. We finish. Father, we do thank you for who you are. We confess with Moses in Deuteronomy that you are our rock. Your work is perfect. You are a God of truth without iniquity. You are just and you are right. And we pray that you would help us as we study these truths from Scripture, as we seek to look at many different verses in your word where you've revealed yourself to us. We pray that you would give us a greater desire in our own heart to follow after you, to be conformed to your image. We pray that you'll bless our worship service here to follow, bless Pastor Kimbrough as he preaches. We pray that you'll bless our singing, the reading of scripture, praying, and also our fellowship together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.